0: The man who lived directly across the street had just done the unimaginable. He had taken his newborn baby girl, held her in one hand, went downtown, and when he got downtown with his free hand, he reached down and he took a a little pile of sticks and made them into a pile. And then he took his little baby girl, and before anybody knew what he was about to do, he set her on top of the little pile of sticks, reached inside of his coat, pulled out a knife, thrust it into the heart of that little girl, and killed her. And that was the man that lived directly across the street. The family that lived up the street, well, nobody liked to go near their house. As a matter of fact, when the kids would be out playing, the kids would often cross to the other side of the street, because they said there was just something eerie and kind of spooky about that house. But the adults that lived on the street, they knew what was really going on. They knew that the people that lived in that house were involved in sorcery and divination and witchcraft. And so it was no surprise that the people that lived in that area felt there was something that was just odd about that particular house. And all the good and godly people that lived in the community, over the last little while, they had just kind of suddenly disappeared. But if you happened to go by the police station late at night, you would hear the screams of their torture coming up from the basement of that police station. And so all the good and godly people had just kind of disappeared. And there was no trouble getting the men to go to the place of worship. Because everybody knew that the most sensuous and beautiful women served at the place place of worship as the temple prostitutes. So getting them to go to a place of worship, that was no problem getting the guys to go there. And as you walked around town, on almost every street corner, you would see a, a little statuette about this size by about this size to Baal or Chemosh or Asheroth. And it would be considered completely bad taste for you not to have one of those little statuettes in your house. And so were the days of Elijah 3,000 years ago. The reigning monarch at this time is a man named King Ahab. The Bible describes King Ahab as a man who did more evil than any king before him. And he's married to a real winner. He's married to a woman whose name even to this day is synonymous with evil. He's married to Jezebel. Jezebel had been the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, one of the neighboring countries. Nobody knows for sure how it was that she came from Phoenicia over to Israel. Probably some type of a trade agreement or something of that nature. But why in the world would she want to leave the beautiful green harvest of of Phoenicia and come to this desert country called Israel? Why would she want to do that? And by gum, if she's going to leave Phoenicia, at least she's going to bring with her the God, quote, quote, that is responsible for the harvest and the fertility and the abundance of Phoenicia. So when she comes from Phoenicia, she brings with her this little statue about this size, this size, and if you saw it, it's in the shape of a bull, cow bull, and standing on the back of the bull is a figure that represents Baal. But everybody knows this little statuette, this is not the real God Baal. The real God Baal, by this point, everybody knows, quote, quote, that the real God Baal resides on Mount Carmel. That's where Baal actually resides. Well, by this point, Elijah is tremendously distressed because fully 93% of the population of Israel at this point has long since abandoned the worship of Jehovah God and are now fully committed to Baal worship. But Elijah is trying to live a God-pleasing life. And one day he's, he's surprised to discover that God is actually speaking to him. And he has this ability to hear the voice of God and to hear it completely accurate. And he begins by hearing, God begins telling him things about the future. And I'm sure the first few times that that Baal, excuse me, that Elijah would, would speak, he would say, well, I think God told me that such and such is going to happen next week. And then it would happen exactly that way. And then he would hear the voice of God again. And God would tell him something else about the future, and it would come to pass. And he would hear something else about the future, and again it would come to pass. And not only was he hearing things prophetically that God was giving him, but God is also working miraculously through him with healings and signs and wonders going on in and through this man's life. Well, one day, God speaks to Elijah, and he says, I want you to go and I want you to confront King Ahab. And I want you to tell them that Jehovah God is not happy with the direction of the nation. Go and confront him. If you've got your Bibles, this is 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we are. And so I've, I'm sure, again, Elijah is, is tremendously distressed. He's got this... This like a hundred kilometer trip. It's about a fifty mile trip from the little town of Tishbe where he lives. This little pipsqueak out of the place, out of the backwoods area, to go to the capital city of Samaria and to confront King Ahab. Like, how is he ever going to get an audience with the king? But in obedience to what he feels that God has told him to do, he goes to Samaria and somehow he makes this appointment to be able to see the king. And so there's the king and there's the queen and there's the royal household and there's all the, the prophets of Asheroth and there's all the prophets of Baal. And into this, this palace room strides Elijah, King Ahab. God is not happy with the nation of Israel. And to show that he is not happy with the nation of Israel, for the next three years, there'll be no rain any place in Israel. And with that, then he boogies out of there as fast as he can. I suspect King Ahab goes, Who is this nutcase? Who allowed this guy to even get into my presence telling me that God is not happy with the nation of Israel, saying it's not going to rain or something like that? Oh, this is just craziness. Forget him. But an interesting thing happens. For the rest of the week, there's no rain any place in Israel. It's not uncommon to desert country. Second week goes by. No rain any place in Israel. Not unusual. Three weeks go by, four weeks go by, not a drop of rain any place in the nation of Israel. Five, six weeks go by with no rain. And suddenly people are beginning just to talk a little bit. When was the last time we had some rain around here? Oh, I don't know, it's been a while. You know, things are looking a little dusty. Yeah, a little dusty. Seven, eight weeks go by. As they're walking through the neighborhood, as they cross the grass, instead of the grass going underneath their feet, they're hearing crunch, crunch, crunch. And the dust is coming up. When was the last time it rained around here? Oh, boy, it's, like, it's got to be like a couple of months or so. Oh, well, I remember back in 73, we had a dry spell back then as well. You know, it's, it's, I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll start to rain sometime. Have you noticed the well? Yeah, I noticed the well. Boy, the water level is kind of getting down there a little bit. Yeah, I'm starting to get down there. Nine, ten weeks, 13 weeks go by. Not a drop of rain any place in Israel. They go and look in the well. The water levels are getting dangerously. When was the last time you saw the water that low? I don't know. And the little streams are beginning to dry up. And after three months of no rain, the harvest that should be, the corn that should be up here someplace, is way down here and it's looking pretty bad. Four months go by, they go to do the harvest and instead of getting something decent by way of all their work in the fields, they get this scrawny, scrawny little harvest. And the little streams now are really drying up and even the major rivers are beginning to look pretty bad. And so now with no harvest or very little harvest, all of a sudden, how are you gonna feed the population? So the king opens up the storehouses and says, well, we'll feed the the population for a while here. And so they begin feeding the population using the, the storehouses that they've got. But that doesn't last for very long. And now five months go by. And you look out in the fields, and there's not a blade of grass to be seen any place out there. And the goats and the lambs and the cows are looking pretty sickly out there. And they're having to start bringing water to them because the little streams are all dried up. And the elderly people are getting sicker and sicker. And the little kids, because there's not enough water to kind of dampen their forehead when they've got a fever going. And this drought thing is getting very serious. Six, seven, eight months go by, no rain anyplace in Israel. Those of you that are farmed, I come from a bit of a farming background, you look at the ground, I mean, it is hard as iron. And the farmer says, there's no sense even trying to plant anything in this. It's not going to do anything. And so they don't even bother planting that next year. Because there's no sense. 10, 11, a whole year goes by. Not a drop of rain. Now, not only the little streams have dried up, now the major streams have begun to dry up. And now they're starting to import water and food from neighboring countries to try and feed the population, and people are getting sick, and all of a sudden the price is going way up. And these elderly people that used to be able to just go down to the local well and get their water from there, they can't get the water anymore from there. So they have to go further and further afield, and people are sick, and the cattle and sheep and goats are dying in the fields, and things are getting serious around here. It's been a year with no rain in Israel. A year and a half goes by. By this point, massive death all over the place. The cattle in the field have long since been dying. There's just no water. There's nothing green to feed them. There's, no, there's no, nothing that they can appeal to from the barns. They've used up, they've brought in all the barrels of water that they could from farther and further afield. And, and now the neighboring countries say, we can't send you any more food. We can't send you any more water. This is serious. A national catastrophe at this point. And King Ahab says, wasn't there some guy here like a year ago that said something about a drug? Who who was that guy? Oh yeah, his name was Elijah. Secret police. You go find this guy. You hunt all over the place. He's the troubler of Israel. He's the one that's causing all the problems around here. And so the police go, looking for this guy. Can't find him. Two years go by. Now we've got death at an unbelievable scale. I mean, children are dying, elderly are dying, the cattle have lost, died. even the young, healthy people. You talk about two years with no rain in the land? Every well is now dried up. All, there's hardly any water, any place to be found in Israel. Three years go by. Not a drop of rain any place. And God speaks to Elijah. Go back and confront King Ahab. Are you kidding me, God? Everybody's looking for me. If they find me, they're supposed to take me to the, to the king or put me to death. God says, go, tell him I'm about to bring an end to the drought. But before I do, he's to go to Mount Carmel and assemble all the prophets of Baal and Asheroth there. And if he would do that, I will bring an end to the drought. So Elijah goes, stands on the side of a hill. There's King Ahab. King Ahab, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. The Lord Jehovah says he's going to bring an end to the drought, but you're to assemble on Mount Carmel, the epicenter of where Baal worship takes place. You gather the prophets of Baal. You gather the prophets of Asherah there. And if you will do that, God, Jehovah, will bring an end to the drought. And then Elijah boogies off. And on the appointed day, Word goes out like wildfire. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? The the, the drought is supposed to end, but there's going to be some big confrontation on Mount Carmel. we better go see. And so on the appointed day, there's hundreds, thousands of people that gather on Mount Carmel. I've been to this spot. There's 450 prophets of Baal. There's the royal household. There's thousands of Jews that have gathered there. Onto the scene strolls Elijah. He looks first at the king Ahab and the royal household and all the prophets of Baal. But instead he turns and he looks at the people and he says, How long will you halter between two opinions? If Jehovah God is God, then worship him. But if Baal is Baal, it is God, then worship him. And do you know what the scripture says the people did? Scripture says the people were silent. Elijah looks down in disgust. There's the man that had taken his little newborn baby girl and had offered her as a human sacrifice, trying to get it to rain. He looks over there. There's a group of people that had just come from the temple prostitutes trying to invoke the gods to bring rain. He looks over there. There's a, the family that had involved in witchcraft and sorcery trying to invoke somehow it to rain. He looks at disgust, and the people are standing in silence, the scripture says. So Elijah ups the ante. He says, How about this? Would you serve the God that would answer with fire? And this time the people said, What you said is good. So now, for the first time, he turns away from the Jewish people and he turns back to the royal household and the 450 prophets of Baal. He says, you guys, you go first. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how big of an altar they built. But stop and think. This is 450 prophets of Baal building a place of a sacrifice, an altar, in front of the royal household, in front of thousands of the Jewish people. I'm thinking they built something like Tim the Tool man I don't know, that's what comes to my mind. I'm thinking this great big monstrosity of this this altar. And they take the wood, and they find some scrawny cow, and they kill it, and they put it on top. And now, here in the epicenter of where Baal is supposed to reside, they start pleading with Baal. Oh, bell, 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 we worship you, bell. Answer with fire, bell. Bell, come on, bell, we believe in you. Come on, bell. Mm, mm. Come on, bell, please, answer with mm. Come on, bell, answer, please, right now. Oh, bell, 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 bell. And do you know what happens? Nothing happens. And so now these guys start really ramping it up. I mean, these guys are now engaged. And the Bible says they take out swords and spears and they begin cutting themselves, and blood is flowing. And they bring out whoever the Billy Graham of Baal worship is, and they bring out the oldest scrolls and they begin, Come on, come on, we believe, come on, answer, answer with fire. Do you know what happens? Nothing happens. Do you know why nothing happens? Because there is no God Baal. And this goes on for hours and hours. And finally, Elijah goes, Guys, give it a rest. We didn't say that, but it's something like that. Guys, okay, it's now my turn. And this time, the scripture does tell us what Elijah did. The Bible says he took 12 stones. Now, I figure Elijah's a guy about my size. I don't know how big he is. I figure he's about my size. How big of a stone can I lift? I figure I can lift a stone about that big. Would you give me that? I can lift a stone about that big. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 12 stones. The altar can't be any higher than that. That's got to be the max, how high. It's only 12 stones. He takes a group of sticks. He puts it on top. He finds some scrawny cow, kills it, lays it on top. Scripture says he digs a trench around the perimeter of this altar, maybe with his heel. I don't know what he dug with. He dug some type of trench. Then he says to some guys, "Mm, guys, uh, there's hardly any water in Israel, but there is a stream there, and here's four pails, four buckets, Go get four pails of water and dump it on top of this sacrifice. So the four guys go and dutifully put four pails of water on it. He says, mm, do it again. Push, 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 poosh. He says, mm, do it again. Twelve buckets of water on top of this sacrifice. And then he steps back and he prays this itty-bitty tiny prayer. And as he prays in front of the thousands of people that are there, fire falls from heaven. Push! Burns up the cow, burns up the the wood, melts the rock, evaporates the water. And the people go, Did you just see what happened? Did you just see what happened? And scripture says they fell on their face. These thousands of people that are there fall on their face and simultaneously say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And revival comes to the nation just like that. And I go, wow, that is so amazing. What a great idea Elijah had to have a drought for three years and have this big confrontation on Mount Carmel. What a great idea that was. No, it had nothing to do with Elijah. As a matter of fact, all that was happening in that moment is Elijah was doing exactly what God had told him to do. If you have your Bibles, notice what it says. Chapter 18, verse 34, 36. 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all of these things at your command. Revival came to the nation of Israel as Elijah heard the voice of God and did what God said. That's what brought revival. The presence and power of God showed up. And that's what convinced people. That's what broke the apathy. That's what convinced people to say the Lord he is God and the rejection of Baal. What a great idea that God had. And all Elijah had to do was do what God told him to do. By the way, do you know why this whole thing happened? Like why the building of this altar on Mount Carmel? Because historians tell us this is how Baal worship was introduced into Israel that when Jezebel brought this little statuette of Baal, and she brought her prophets of Baal, they had built an altar, hidden some people inside of the altar, and when they called for fire, somebody inside the altar had set it on fire. And they thought, oh, that's amazing. Baal must be true. But when you build the altar in front of the people, and they can see what it is that you're doing, All of a sudden, the fraud is shown for what it really is. And with Elijah's little 12-stone altar, there's no way he can hide somebody inside that. Revival came because the presence and the power of God showed up. Revival came because there was a man who heard the voice of God did what God told him to do, and God responded mercifully by showing up with power and presence. And I went, wait a second. I've seen this elsewhere in Scripture. In what other context have we seen people come to faith in God? People that somebody heard the voice of God and did what God said. How about Jesus himself? Doesn't the Scripture say about Jesus... He said, I only say what the Father gives me to say, and I only do what the Father tells me to do. How about we look at something like Philip? Philip heard the word of God. God said to Philip, go south to the road that leads to Gaza. He heard what God said to do. He did what God told him to do. And as a result, the Ethiopian eunuch, and by extension the the nation of Ethiopia, came to hear the gospel message. How about Ananias? Ananias heard the voice of God. God said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. He heard what God said to do. He did what God said to do. As a result, Saul is converted. Peter heard the voice of God. Go to Cornelius' house. He did what God told him to do. As a result, the entire family and community is saved. The apostles heard the voice of God. Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them. They heard what God said to do. They did what God told them to do. As a result, the entire Mediterranean seacoast is evangelized. How about Paul? Heard the voice of God. Go to Macedonia. Did what God told him to do. As a result, Lydia and her family are saved. Paul heard the voice of God go to Jerusalem. As a result, kings and princes and Caesars all hear the gospel message. So I ask us this afternoon, who amongst us doesn't want to see revival? And under what circumstances does revival come? Do we really think in the evangelical church world that if we just have a better powerpoint presentation that somehow that that's going to result in revival if we just build a nicer building if we do a better job at advertising if we have something done with excellence do we really think that this type of stuff is going to bring revival there are times where it takes the normal expression of god's love and mercy is not enough there are times it takes an extraordinary expression of the love and mercy to break through the apathy and indifference in a society. It takes God showing up in power to break through the apathy and indifference. I'm not against nice lights and nice PowerPoints. I teach evangelism, church growth, and health, and I teach all that kind of stuff at the, at the Bible College in, in, in Sussex. I'm not against it. It's just not enough. In an age when we're living something similar, to what was going on in the days of Elijah. At this point, 93% of the population has turned its back on Jehovah God. In Canada, on any given Sunday, 88% of the population is not in any type of a place of worship. And I mean the broadest definitions of places of worship that you can think of. What is really going to turn our nation around? You say, Steve, you seem like you're a little worked up about this. Take a chill pill. I am worked up about this, because I want to see Canada saved. I'm really concerned about the province of New Brunswick and the maritime provinces. I'm really concerned about what's going on in the general atmosphere of North America. I've got unsaved family members. What would bring people from a place of indifference or, or they're so bought into secularism and materialism, what would cause them to turn their back on that and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And I'm at the point now where I'm absolutely convinced if God does not show up in power, we are not going to see revival in Canada. When does God show up? When his people hear his voice and do what he tells them to do. That's when God shows up in power. I would love to stand in front of you and tell you I hear the voice of God all the time. That would just be a patent lie. But there is something within me that longs to hear the voice of God more and more. I pastored in Ottawa for 22 years. The Lord was very gracious to us. We started with two people. We ended up with about 1,400 people at the church. God was very gracious to us. One day, I'm sitting in my pastor's office, and I'm having my morning devotions just like I had every morning when I came into the church office. Came in, first thing I do, don't turn on the computer, don't do anything, open up my Bible, have my morning devotions. I'm sitting there having my morning devotions just like every other day, and just like that, bang, God speaks to me. Thursday one o'clock, go to this location, this person will be there, and give them this message. It was so clear, I wrote it down. Thursday, one o'clock, this person, this location, give them this message. That was Tuesday morning. Thursday at 12.30, I got in my car and started to drive. And I went to the place where God told me to go, and when I got there... I saw the person's car there. Now I'm really nervous. I walk into where God had told me to go. The person saw me and said, Steve, what are you doing here? And I said, God sent me with a message for you. And his exact response back to me was, yeah, right. And I pulled up my day timer and I turned it towards him. Thursday, one o'clock, this location, you would be here. Here's what God wants me to tell you. Here's what you would not know if I didn't tell you. That guy should not have been at that location Thursday at 1 o'clock. He actually worked on the far side of Ottawa, a regular 9-to-5 job. He should have been at work Thursday at 1 o'clock, but he wasn't. He was exactly where I went to at 1 o'clock on Thursday. How could I possibly have known that? Quinky dink? No. God still speaks today. I'm not going to tell you where this happened because, because of the nature of the story, but you'll understand as I tell you this story why I'm not telling you where it happened. But it happened here in the Maritimes actually not too long ago. I was at a church, I was sitting right down over here in the church, I was there at invitation from the church, and during the worship time, God spoke to me and said, I've got a message for the people. I leaned over to the pastor, That I'd never been in this community, never been there ever in my life. I knew the pastor a little bit, and I knew one other person a little bit, I I had no clue of this congregation whatsoever. I leaned over to the pastor, and I said, I think God just gave me a word for your congregation. I said, is it okay if I share it? He said, I guess so. So they finished the worship time. The pastor came up front. He says, Dr. Elliott's here. He believes God just told him something to share with our congregation, so Dr. Elliott, come up and share what you say. I went and stood before this congregation, and I said, God just told me there's somebody here, you're either here or you know somebody that this is true of, and you're thinking of taking the life of a baby. And God wants you to know he wants that baby to live. And there was a little bit more to it, and then I went and sat down. And my bum no sooner touched the the edge of that seat that on the opposite side of the auditorium, a lady that I have no knowledge of who this lady is, I don't even know who she is to this day, the moment I sat down, she stood up. And she said, nobody knows this, but we found out that our teenage daughter, who's not married, is pregnant. And we've been wondering what our options are about this pregnancy. She said, I think this message is for me and my family. How could I possibly know that? I have no way of knowing that. I've never even been to this community before, let alone know that family or what's going on in their lives. God still speaks today. I don't think there's anybody in this room that even knows Helen and I. My wife and I, we've been married for almost 40 some odd years now. We were almost 15 years not being able to have kids. And so we went the adoption route and we adopted our first child, We'd gone through the infertility clinics. We'd taken medicine. We'd had exploratory surgery. We tried everything. We'd been prayed over. We'd been anointed with oil. We did everything we possibly could do to get pregnant. We couldn't get pregnant, so we adopted our first child. That was such a positive experience. We put our name right back in with the adoption agency and said, we want to adopt another child. Shortly after we put our name in with the adoption agency up in Toronto, the phone rang. The adoption agency lady says, we've got another child and the biological mom wants you to be the parents for this child. So we left Ottawa, we drove to Toronto, we got the child, we came back. I mean, we're just, we're happy as a clam. I mean, at this point, we've been married for like 15 years, maybe 18 years, and we'll be able to have children. So we're thrilled. We had little Kristen, that was the name that we gave to her. We had Kristen for about 14 or 15 days, and the phone rang. It was the adoption agency in Toronto telling us that the 16-year-old girl had changed her mind and wanted the baby back. The adoption laws in Ontario are that if the biological mom changes her mind in the first 21 days, you cannot contest it. You must give the baby back. So we sobbed all the way from Ottawa to Toronto to take little Kristen back to the adoption agency to go back to her 16-year-old mom. And we sobbed all the way back to Ottawa. And as we were driving back to Ottawa, I said to Helen, I said, honey, we've done everything. I mean, we, the infertility clinics, we've taken medications, we've surgeries, we've done everything. I said, the only thing we've never done about our infertility is we've never fasted about it. Why don't we go on a nine-month fast from television and ask God if he'd be gracious and allow us to have a child? So Helen and I decided that's what we would do. And just so you you know that it's a real fast, it was during hockey season. And we had a number of the Ottawa Senators that came to our church. I mean, this was a real fast. When I got married, I was playing six games of hockey a week. So when I'm saying a fast from television, I mean, this was a real fast. For nine months, we didn't watch any television. That ended in June. In July... The first week of July, I'm in my pastor's office. Again, just having my devotions. Nothing unusual. Just sitting there reading my Bible, praying, doing my morning devotions. And just like that, God spoke to me. And he said, expect a child. It's a boy. His name's going to be Jedediah. Bible verse for his life. And an insight into what he's going to be like. It was so clear. Again, I wrote it down. Expect a child's boy, Jedediah, Bible verse, insight into his life. That was Tuesday morning. I went home at lunchtime and I said to Helen, I said, guess what? She said, What? I said, God spoke to me today. What? What did he say? Expect a child's boy, Jedediah, Bible verse, insight into his life. And Helen said back to me, she said, Is it going to be by adoption or is it going to be biologically? And I went, I don't know. God didn't say. Just said expect a child. That was Tuesday. I'm looking real fast here. Okay, we got some children, so work with me here, adults. That was Tuesday at lunchtime. Friday, what happens with a lady on a monthly basis did not happen. Immediately, we said, she's pregnant. It's a boy. We're going to call him Jedediah. People said, Jeddah, what? The Jedediah. Where'd you get a name like that? Doesn't matter. That's what we're going to call him. That was in July. Right off the bat, we said she was pregnant. We're going to call him Jedediah. In December, the ultrasound showed that it's a boy. He was born in April, and he's now a pastor in Nova Scotia. Quinky dink? I don't think so. God still speaks today. I don't hear from God. I'm not trying to come across super spiritual. I don't hear nearly as much from God as I want to. But that's the context in which God receives glory and honor. That's the context in which God loves to work. That's when God shows up with power. When people hear his voice. We don't need more praying. Hang on. We don't need more praying. We need more hearing from God and aligning our lives with what he says. The person that I respect the most about hearing from God is a pastor friend of mine in Prior, Ontario. His name's Ian. I've never met somebody that hears from God more accurately than he does. He and I were speaking at a family camp in Michigan last year. We're walking towards the tabernacle, and he says to me as we're walking towards the tabernacle, he says, God just told me something. I said, what did he tell you? He said, there's going to be a lady in the service Her name is Sue. She knows somebody named Joe, and God's called her to be a world changer. Okay. That evening after I finished preaching, Ian came up to the front, and he says, I think God gave me a word of knowledge. I believe God said there's somebody here. Your name is Sue. You know somebody named Joe, and God's called you to be a world changer. Who are you? And it was crickets. I mean, nobody moved. And Ian said, well, sometimes I mishear from God, but I'm pretty sure God said that. Nothing. The service ended. He and I are standing down front, right up about here, at the end of the service. And the people are going out at this particular point, and this lady comes up. And I'm standing right there. So this is not secondhand. I'm there. I mean, I hear what happens. She said to Ian, she says, you know what you said tonight? Ian says, yeah. She says, I need to tell you something. My name is Sue. My grandfather's name is Joe. And yesterday, my grandfather told me God has called me to be a world changer. God still speaks today. If there's going to be revival in Canada, it's going to be because God shows up. And God shows up when his people hear from him and do what he has to say. I'm going to come down to the keyboard here. There was a song that I heard a while ago, quite a while ago now, and... This song just so gripped me. It just, it just encapsulates what I've been sensing God is wanting to do these days. And so if you would allow me, I'm going to go to the keyboard. I'm just going to play and sing this song. And if you want to, you can close your eyes. If you sense something within you that says, yes, God, what Steve is saying in that song or what that song is saying, that resonates with my heart. I better take my
1: glasses so I can actually see what I'm looking at. We need wisdom, we need power
0: and true love for each other. But we've had so many neighbors and people.
2: So we come before your face. Your grace. Bring your people to a state of kingdom life. Restore your church again. your people once again with your precious holy hand we pray let your kingdom shine upon which we need to- what your sure people want
1: that we live in a day and age that really resembles a lot of what Elijah was experiencing when so many people had turned their backs on you. Somehow he knew it wouldn't just be by fancier programs or better advertising or not even better preaching. The only thing that would bring revival is if you showed up and he heard your voice And it was scary, but he did what you asked him to do. And then you showed up. And when the people saw the evidence of your presence and your power, in mass they fell down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What would it take for the people of Fredericton to fall on their face and say, The Lord, He is God. Nothing short of you showing up in power and presence. And so, Father, forgive us for the many times that we've tried to manufacture revival. Those times that we think that something in in our arrogance that we can do it. We humbly confess to you, Lord, we cannot. We need you. Whatever stops us from hearing you, we pray, Father, would you get that out of the way? We humble ourselves before you. We confess our sin. We ask for mercy. We ask, God, that you would touch our land and do something amazing that you would draw people to yourself. We think of the great revivals that have taken place that came up the east coast of the states. We think of the revivals that took place out west in Canada, we, the revivals that took place in the 1800s in Ontario. We see, Father, what took place in the Welsh revivals. We know, Father, that hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in Christ. And we long to see that happen again in our day. So we're asking, Father, give us ears to hear. Give us faith to obey what you tell us to do. And we ask, Father, that you would move in our midst again. And we will be grateful for all that you do. In Jesus' precious name.